0: you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12 this morning. And as you are turning there, I will just note that we have moved out of that very lengthy and very rich doctrinal section of Romans, 11 chapters of doctrine. Um, If you're one of those people that think doctrine divides, I would just really encourage you to read through Romans the rest of your life, very slowly and methodically. Um, If you're one of those people that think doctrine doesn't have an impact on your life, then this is the beginning of the rest of this letter in which Paul is going to apply all these truths. All those weighty doctrines he's going to bring to bear on the totality of the Christian life. Um, John Murray, I've quoted him throughout this series. He was the late professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He said this. He said, it is not as if ethics is distinct from doctrine. It is not as if ethics... How we should live is distinct from doctrine, teaching about who Christ is, what he's done. He says a great deal of the most significant doctrine is enunciated in the teaching concerned with the most practical details in the Christian life. I think we're going to see that beginning this week and through the rest of this letter to the end of chapter 16. So we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 12, and we're, we're just looking at two verses. I know some of you are excited, but I'm sure I can squeak 40 minutes out of these two verses if you really want me to. I don't know how this is going to come out, so we'll see, so buckle up. And I want to encourage you um, to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Here, the apostle has moved on most uh, Most recently from that from that great teaching about God's electing mercy God says I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion and then He spends chapters 9 through 11 explaining how God does that with respect to elect Jews and elect Gentiles culminating in the salvation of the true Israel 1126 in this manner all Israel will be saved and then And then he breaks out into a doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways. That's the right response to all that doctrine. Let's praise God. And now he comes to apply it. And Paul now says, I appeal to you. And I I like the way some of the older translations put this. I beseech you. I urge you. I, I I am appealing to you. what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, many years ago, I heard a sermon by the late uh, John Gerstner, and it was on this passage, and in that sermon, Gerstner told the story about a young woman who had relayed to him that when she was about 15 years old, had decided that she was gonna commit herself to uh, foreign missions in China. And so from 15 years old, well into her late 20s, this young woman made every step and, and put herself in every place necessary to prepare for missions to China. When she was a later teenager, she went to Bible college. and thought if she could prepare by getting a great grasp of scripture and church history, she would be better prepared for missions and certainly write about that. And then after Bible college, she went on to what would be um, tantamount to a mission school, mission organization in New York City, where they train them for the special nuances of serving in, in foreign missions. When Gerstner told this story, he said that there was one caveat that this girl had said. She said that she would dedicate her entire life to serving the Lord in foreign missions in China if he would bring her a godly husband along the way. Bible college came and went. Missionary school came and went. And that girl who had made this commitment when she was 15 years old, now in her later 20s, became very bitter. She was bitter because she had made a deal with God and had decided to try to use the Lord and pay him back with Christian service for what she wanted him to do for her. Now that is a very complex psychological problem in the lives of most Christians. Um, I have known many Christians say if the Lord would just deliver me from this sin, then I would do this But I'm here this morning to tell you that's not how Christian service works It's not how Christian service is animated and motivated and it is foreign to every page of Scripture Let me also say this at the outset this morning. We live in a very difficult society In which we have challenges of consecrating ourselves fully to the Lord. I heard Tim Keller say in 2011 that there has probably never been a more difficult society in the history of the world in which professing Christians find it difficult to commit themselves fully to the Lord than it is in our society because we have so much affluence. We have so many opportunities to do whatever we want to do. We can go wherever we want to go. We have every freedom under heaven, and those become detrimental to us consecrating ourselves and committing ourselves fully to serving the Lord. Now, I tell you those things at the outset because as we enter in on this applicatory section of Romans, one of the things that the Apostle Paul does, and it's so magnificent, is before he comes to apply the precious doctrines of the gospel to how we're to interact with one another as individuals, before he comes to apply these precious truths to how we're to interact with one another in marriage or in the church or to outsiders in the world and all those things he's going to deal with, Paul comes with a very very general, very all-encompassing, very robust application about what should be true of us if we have received all of those precious truths about Christ and redemption that he has just set out in the first 11 chapters. And he does this with a very general approach. He says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is the big umbrella. That means that there ought not to be one avenue of our lives in which we are not in some way or another seeking to lay down our lives as living sacrifices to God. Uh, There ought not to be some secret part of our life in which we are not seeking to live as living sacrifices to God. And yet most of us know that there are always those areas of our life in which we recognize that we have failed and so paul is going to do something magnificent this morning first he's going to give us the exhortation secondly he's going to give us the motivation and finally he's going to set out the demonstration the exhortation the motivation and the demonstration well notice as he comes to appeal to them, He does it with this sense of urgency. There is there is in this word that Paul uses that uh, The ESV translated translates. I appeal to you and the, the new King James uh, I beseech you it is it is an urgent plea here is the apostle in a sense getting down on his knees and saying Please listen to what I have to say right now I've just given you all the the unbelievably deep and profound truths about what God has done in Christ to redeem you. I've given you all the contours of redemption. I've told you everything that Jesus has done. I've told you about the glories of the cross. I've cried out about the depths of the riches of the the unsearchable wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, please, I urge you to listen to me. It is... It is an apostolic appeal that we don't find anywhere else in the page of Scripture. There is nothing like the appeal Paul makes right here anywhere else in any other letter in the Bible. He is pleading with the people to listen carefully. And he's saying, I appeal to you. And notice this first address. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, this is remarkable. It's remarkable for a couple reasons. The first is, this is an apostle. Now, I know in our day, apostles are a dime a dozen. I get that. If, if you've met an apostle in your lifetime, I'm here to tell you, you've never met an apostle. <laughs> you gotta think about that one. And, and yet, in, in biblical terms, there were 13 apostles in total. It's not a lot of apostles and these were men who had seen the risen Jesus These are men who were marked by what Paul will call the signs of the apostles great power and wonder During the apostolic age not today By the way, if you've seen an Apostolic miracle I'm here to tell you you've never seen one They're all in the pages of scripture all of them but here is one who could assert his authority if he wanted to, and could say, you will listen to me and you will do every single thing I tell you. And yet, he is the last person to do that. And when he appeals to Christians, his appeal is based on that mutual spiritual adoption that we have in Christ. He says, I urge you, I beseech you, I appeal to you, brothers. He puts himself on the same plane, one family of God, one people of God, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because there are many who set themselves up and use other people in the name of Christianity to make themselves great, and Paul says, my appeal is based to you on our common sibling togetherness in union with Jesus. This is not just a throwaway phrase for Paul. Paul's not just using it to say, hey, brothers, he's saying I appeal to you, brethren. Now, he goes on and he says, by the mercies of God to present yourself, your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul is not just using the language of adoption, and he's used that throughout this letter. You remember back in chapter 8, he said that that we have the Holy Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That he, he put the doctrine of adoption right there in Romans 8, that all of creation is, is groaning and is waiting for the... the the uh, resurrection of those united to Jesus, the, the revelation of the sons of God. That that's that is central for Paul, the doctrine of adoption. But there are other doctrines that Paul understands are central for believers to understand if they're going to live the Christian life. Spiritual brotherhood is one, spiritual priesthood is another. One of the interesting things that Paul's doing here is. He is using priestly language now this is one of the passages where the reformers started developing what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers throughout the middle ages up until the reformation there was a sharp divide between clergy and people the priest and the lay And and never shall the two come together the one was great the other was menial and the reformers came along and they said You know in the new covenant in the teaching of scripture It's very clear that God has made every believer a kingdom of priests a royal priesthood a holy nation And that we are all called to live and act as those who are united to the great high priest and who are ourselves to live a spiritual priesthood Now, very simply, there were two things that priests did. Only two things. They sacrificed, and they interceded. They brought the sacrifice, and they interceded. And here, Paul is using priestly language. He's saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you, as spiritual priests, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That you live as the spiritual priesthood you have been redeemed to be. Now, that means, if I can say this this morning, there ought never to be a Christian, no matter how young or how old, who says, oh, lowly old me, I can't really do anything because all the, all the professional Christian ministry people, they do it all. What Paul's saying is every Christian is called to live as a priest to God and to live the totality of their lives as a priest offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. If I can say this this morning, that is revolutionary when you get that. When that captivates your mind and your heart, you start to think about everything differently. You don't think, well, maybe I could do this or this or this. You think about the whole of your life as priestly service. That's that's what Paul is coming into here. Now, now, Paul's going to develop this in many ways, but I want to read to you something Tim Keller wrote that's so helpful. He says Paul is using temple language. He's leading us to think about a worshiper coming with an offering. He's thinking about a worshiper coming with an offering, but he's not talking about a sin offering. He's talking about the burn offering, which had to be the choice animal, had to be without blemish, the burnt offering was offered as a way of showing your absolute commitment to God, as if to say, everything I have is yours with no reservation. In other words, it was an expression of passion and commitment. Um, You may not know this, but in the pages of the Old Testament, the priest was wholly consecrated to the Lord. He didn't have a compartmentalized life. Uh, You'll remember the account of Samuel, who was dedicated by Hannah in the temple. And there was Eli, day and night, raising him in the temple. He lived in the priestly quarters of the then tabernacle, what would now be the temple, post that in redemptive history. And the priest would be there day and night. The priest lived to consecrate himself fully to the Lord in the Lord's service. And the Apostle Paul is, by this analogy, he is essentially saying to all believers, you are to consider yourself as those who are to consecrate yourself completely to the Lord. Now, can I say this this morning? We have a massive problem in our day in the church, not just evangelical churches, all churches. We have a massive problem in our day with commitment. We have a whole lot of Christians and professing Christians who think if I just give a little time, if I just give a little money, if I just give a little service, if I give give enough worship, I'm being fruitful. And and what Paul is doing is he is essentially putting that idea at bay and he's saying if you're going to think properly about yourself as a redeemed man or woman, if you're going to think rightly about yourself, not falsely about yourself, but rightly, then you have to understand you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus. He has purchased you for himself with his blood, and he has made you a royal priesthood so that the way I should think about myself and the way you should think about yourself is there's no area of my life that ought not to be consecrated in some way to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go into full time Christian service and ministry. Neither does it mean that you can never enjoy things in the world. We'll come back to that. But what it means is that we are to view the whole of us as blood bought people who have been made a royal priesthood whose lives in this world now exist so that we would offer ourselves unreservedly to God in every area of our life for fruitful, sacrificial service out of gratitude. Now, having mentioned, having mentioned the exhortation, the urgency, the address to them as brothers, the address to them as priests, Paul embeds in this The motivation, notice there in verse 12, this may be the most important part of this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, I noted at the beginning of this sermon, the girl who at 15 wanted to dedicate her whole life to the Lord. Except she wasn't doing it. In response to the mercy she had received from God based on the redemption she had in Christ, she was doing it to try to get something from God. That's a legal spirit. That's not what we want. I don't want you to leave today and go out of here and say, I want to serve the Lord, you know, if he makes my marriage better, if he does this. No because of the mercies of god because that's the foundation essentially what paul is doing there by mentioning the mercies of god is he is cramming all 11 chapters of romans 1 to 11 into that he's saying if you want to understand the motivation for christian living and service understand everything i just taught you in romans 1 through 11 all that jesus is all that god did through him to justify you All that he did to forgive you. All that he did to break the power of sin in your life through the death of Christ on the cross. All that he did to seal you with his spirit. All that he did in electing you and predestinating you. And then, this is marvelous, that word mercies is the same word he used recurrently in chapters 9 through 11. The Lord said, I will have mercy on the one I will have mercy on all the way down to the end of chapter 11. Notice, notice verse 30 and 31. He says about Jews and Gentiles, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jewish disobedience, so they, Jewish people, have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. God having compassion on you. By the way, the word is a form of the word that we get the idea of compassion or pity from in the New Testament. You could essentially read this as I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the compassion, the pity, the redemptive Not giving us what we deserve, but giving Christ what we deserved on the cross because of that. Because of that. Um, I think we had a Sunday school class recently where we considered the indicatives and the imperatives of Christianity. And every one of Paul's letters can basically be divided in some way or another between the indicatives, the facts of Christianity, what Christ did, what God's done to redeem us, not what we do. We're not in there. We're only in there in so much as Christ had to die for us. All the things that Jesus has accomplished, and then the imperatives. Now, how should we then live? Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, Paul is laying the foundation of the indicatives. Everything God has done in Christ as the last Adam, as as the true sacrifice. Listen, this is remarkable. You're going to hear this in a moment. Paul is calling us to be a different kind of sacrifice because the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus was offered on the cross. You see... That was everything he was saying in those earlier chapters, that Christ has become the acceptable, justifying, wrath-propitiating sacrifice of God at Calvary. So that he offered himself without spot to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins and my sins. That's, that's the epicenter of the facts of Christianity. And if that is ever taken out of the way, Then that will never be strong enough to hold the weight of the imperatives. Now. What should you do? How should you live? Um, One theologian says the The indicatives the facts of christianity have to be weighty enough to hold the imperatives That's why paul spent 11 chapters setting out the foundation the facts of what christ has done and now now He wants us to understand that the proper motivation is a reflection on the mercy that God has had for us in Christ. This is revolutionary. If I can say this to you this morning, whenever you have caught yourself backsliding or going back to sins that you don't want to go back to, or failing in the Christian life and all of us have known those in different ways and to different degrees Whenever we catch ourselves doing that we ought to reflect on The mercy that God has had on us in Christ We recited this morning uh, What we believe about repentance unto life and right in there it says that we are to have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, so that if I ever take my eyes off of Christ crucified, I am not going to live as a priestly sacrifice unto God. I will just constantly be self-oriented. But when I remember that I'm not my own, I've been bought with a price, even the precious blood of Christ, all that God has done for me, that he's justified me, that he's sanctifying me, that he's promised to glorify me, when I understand those things, then I, I backslide less, I go back to sins I hate less, and I move forward in healthy Christian service. Um, it was, I think, Samuel Johnson, who was not a Christian, who said, the great need of men is not to learn new things, but to remember what you already have been taught. That's really what Paul is doing here. He's saying, don't forget these things, but because of these things, I urge you to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Um, you know, Paul has already intimated what he's going to say here back in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. He said there, thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, the doctrine to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. You see, it's through the truth about Christ and, and that truth owned and believed by me that I then live out the Christian life. That's, that's the springboard to us having fruitful, sacrificial Christian lives. Not, maybe if I do this, God will do this. Maybe if I do this, God will bring me a spouse. Maybe if I do this, I will increase in my success and influence at work and work my way up the corporate ladder. Um, by the way, the Lord has a way of cutting those things down when those are in our hearts to bring us back here and to say, remember all that God has done in Christ. That's got to be the proper motivation. You know, later in this section, you'll notice there at the end of verse one, he'll talk about us living these sacrificial Christian lives as, in the ESV, it says spiritual worship, but the the word in Greek is is logical, logical worship, reasonable worship, and theologians are very divided. They're that many don't understand what Paul's saying. What does he mean this is your logical worship? It sounds it sounds very analytical and um and like mere constructs. But what Paul is saying is there is a reasonableness. There is a reasonableness that if I am remembering what Christ did for me, really and truly reflecting on that, believing it, and resting in it. There is something reasonable about me, then, in response, sacrificing my life for his good and glory and the benefit of others. Listen to this. Eric Alexander says, This is the logical outcome of our having come to the cross. This is the logical outcome of our having come to the cross. We cannot speak of the cross without this being the logical outcome of it. It's possible for people to know all about the facts of Christianity, but not to be believing them, and therefore there is something illogical about how they live their lives contrary to what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. You see, this is not sort of up for grabs. Hey, if you want to, you can live as a living sacrifice. If you really want to. Paul is saying, if you have been redeemed by Christ, this is the logical outworking. If you are sitting at the foot of the cross, this is the fruit that ought to be born of it. Not adding to what he did. Not taking away from what he did. But as the fruit of what he did in our lives. Um, Now, Paul has used another very interesting phrase here under that priestly illustration to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now this ought to seem odd to you because in the Old Testament, if you all have read Leviticus anytime soon, you will know that there are numerous different sacrifices that God required of Israel. And with the exception of the grain offering, every one of those sacrifices was bloody in nature. And every one of those sacrifices required death, the death of the animal in the place of the worshiper. And the point was that sin deserves death, And in order for sin to be atoned for there has to be a judgment that results in death that will provide the atonement and that means either god's judgment falls on you in eternal death or there is a substitute that takes that death on itself or in the case of jesus on himself and the death of the sacrifice yields the benefit of redemption and the forgiveness the sacrifice necessitates death. But here the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that's a bit of an oxymoron. There are no living sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, I heard one, one older pastor say once, um, You could envision the living sacrifice as a live animal squirming on the altar trying to get off. That's what you and I are like, (laughs) squirming to get away. It's alive, and yet God is calling us as living sacrifices to lay down our lives as a pleasing offering to the Lord. Now, I think it's a living sacrifice because Christ ended all sacrifices that God required for atonement. He was the last of the sacrifices. His death ends all sacrifices. And so any talk of sacrifice after that has to be in the context of atonement having been made and the rest being a volitional offering of ourselves in living service to the Lord. You know, I could just stop there And I could ask all of us this morning, I could say, in what ways if you take an inventory of your life right now, and I'm not talking about that I serve in this ministry and I do that and I serve with this ministry, I'm talking about your life, your whole life, in what ways do our lives exhibit that we are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices in every area, the ways we think, the ways we speak. You know, our commitment to Christ, our commitment to his people, the ways we give. You know, I was thinking about this, and I can almost think of no greater example other than the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul than the widow that gave the two mites. Here's a woman that has nothing. And yet, the way she views herself is as a living sacrifice, and she was willing to put in all that she had. Two little mites all the money she had jesus said that's what it looks like to be a living sacrifice And jesus looking over sees the wealthy putting in out of their abundance And he says she has put in more than all because she gave everything now Nowhere in the scripture does it say you need to give up everything and live homeless But everywhere in the scripture does it teach us that every area of our life Is to be a living sacrifice to god And that means that it's going to be costly It means that it could be painful because to be a living sacrifice means that we have to deny ourselves now I said earlier I said that doesn't mean you can't enjoy things in the world But it does mean that you can't live for things in the world It doesn't mean that we can enjoy the pleasures of life if they're not sinful God has given us things to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy them He is rich and gives to us richly to enjoy all things but only in so much as we use them to his glory and not just to please ourselves. Our problem is that we love to please ourselves with things that we ought to be using to the glory of God. And to the benefit of others. And so Paul would tell us this morning that we are to view ourselves as the living sacrifices. Now he gives us qualifiers. Notice. He says holy. And acceptable to God. That means whatever else ought to define us, holiness ought to defi- define us. Now, that is a word we don't talk about often in our culture. In fact, it's a word we don't talk about unless we're affixing it to some curse word or in church. But let me explain to you what holy is not. Holy is not you going up and living in a cave and meditating and praying all day because you think holiness is in isolation from the stresses and the anxieties and the responsibilities of life. That is not, that's monasticism, that's asceticism, and that's unbiblical. Holiness is not, let me say this again, it is not you just separating yourself, praying, meditating, and reading the Bible all day and not living life. Holiness is doing in everything that we do, Doing it as unto the Lord in a way that is pleasing to him. That means even when we do those enjoyable things. And we feast together. And we celebrate things together. We do it with an eye to God's glory. And we do it in a way that is pleasing to him. Um, Paul will flesh this out thirdly he will flesh that out in the demonstration and he sort of puts flesh to what he's saying notice notice verse 2 he says do not be conformed to this world what does it mean to be conformed to this world it means to be carried along with the ways of the world so that we are indistinguishable from the world Now, again, it doesn't mean you separate yourself and become as weird. There are a lot of Christians that think holiness is being odd and peculiar socially. I'm here to tell you that is not holiness. Separating yourself and isolating yourself is not holiness, but being carried along with the world so that we are indistinguishable from the world is not holiness. Paul says, how do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? Do not be conformed to this world. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John more of what that looks like. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world for all that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. By the way, can I say this this morning? Every Christian I have ever met has admitted I struggle with a love of pleasure. Every Christian I have ever met says I struggle with love of possessions. I have never Met a Christian that said, I really struggle with the love of power. And yet I have seen and known many Christians who in their professions, vocations, or even the church seem like they are eaten up by a love of power. And John says, do not love the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are the things of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, all of that is passing away. All of that is fleeting and failing. All of that is useless and, and worthless. And yet Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, that's the negative. Don't leave it there. That's the negative. Don't conform yourself to this world, but then positively. The demonstration of what it means to be a living sacrifice, positively. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, it's interesting, Paul has almost done a, a 360 back to the doctrine that he has set out in those first 11 chapters. And he's essentially saying, look, if, if when you consider whether or not you are living As a living sacrifice unto God, if you're wondering whether you are, the question is, are you having your mind transformed so that your will and your life is transformed? You see, what Paul's getting at is that the truth of the gospel ought to impact your Christian life from the heart, but even though the heart is the goal, it comes through the mind preacher I love used to say this, he used to say, he said, we we want to preach to the hearts of men and women, but we preach to the mind in order to get to the heart. You see, those doctrinal truths, when they enter in and they shape and they conform and they hem in, what what they do is they start to trickle down and we start to be transformed. The word, by the way, for transformed is the exact same word that's used of Jesus at the transfiguration when the divine nature broke out and he was metamorphosized before them. What Paul's saying is God's word and the truth about the gospel is to so have an impact in our minds first and foremost transforming the way we think that it then impacts the way we live. So that if my life is not looking like a living sacrifice, then there's something that is untransformed in my mind. Um, this is why, if I can say this this morning, it's why we've got to read the scriptures fervently. It's why we've got to memorize God's Word. It's why we've got to meditate on it throughout the day, not in isolation, but throughout the day, wherever we're going. Um, I want to give you just a practical takeaway. Pray that the Lord will fill your mind with scripture. Say, Lord, I want to be a man. I want to be a woman. I want to be a boy or a girl whose mind is transformed. Would you bring your word to bear? Look, I can tell you right now, a hundred out of a hundred times when there's contention in a church or in a marriage or with children to parents or parents to children or in the workplace, whenever any of those things are going on, somewhere there are untransformed minds lacking the transforming power and grace of the gospel from the truth of scripture. You know, I was with my company of pastors a week and a half ago and got to lead devotions for us, which is always a daunting task with brothers who are much further along in ministry in many respects. But we looked at uh, James chapter 3 together, and James says there in chapter 3 verses 16 and following he says essentially where does strife come from where does where does warfare come from where does fighting come from among you He said it comes from selfish ambition You want things you don't have you want power you want influence you want authority you want pleasure You want self-pleasing and and he says where this wisdom is it's earthly sensual demonic He actually says that's demonic selfish ambition demonic self-pleasing demonic strife, demonic. Where I know better, demonic. I mean, that's, that's strong language. And then James says, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit. And wherever the fruit of righteousness is sown, there is peace. That's That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying a living sacrifice is someone who says, not my will, but yours be done in every area of life. Whatever station he's put you in, whether in your vocation or in your marriage or with your parenting or among friends or in a church, you see, this is comprehensive. I'm going to leave you with that this morning. If I could say this this morning, the Lord Jesus, did not hang on the cross so that you can compartmentalize what areas of your life you want to sacrifice to God. I'm going to say that again. The Lord Jesus did not hang on the cross so that you could compartmentalize what areas of your life you want to sacrifice to God. Now, this is a challenging word. I'm going to say this here this morning. B.M. Palmer, great Southern Presbyterian, said nothing, which a man carries up to God in the form of sacrifice is a sacrifice unless it costs him something. There must be expenditure in the offering. This is gonna cost me my own desires. It's gonna cost me my love of pleasure. It's gonna cost me my love of possessions. It's gonna cost me my love of power and influence. It's going to cost me my love of respect. It's going to cost me my love of being noticed in my service. It's going to cost me the use of my money. It's going to cost everything. But listen, it is all worth it. It is all worth it. Because what Jesus did on the cross is so full and so perfect that he has purchased the glories of heaven for you that whatever self-sacrifice you make in this life to be holy and acceptable unto God because you've been bought by him, whatever cost is affixed to that, it is nothing, it is nothing compared to the glories that will be revealed in us. It's totally worth it in every way. And the second you think it's not worth it, I just need to please myself, is the second you need to go and sit at the foot of the cross And you need to say, if my Lord Jesus could sacrifice himself for me in all of my sin and ugliness and blackness of heart, if he could do that for me, how can I not sacrifice my life for him? Listen, this is the epicenter. Everything else is just an outworking of this. And I'm going to say this finally this morning. I told you I could probably give 40 minutes. I'm sure I have. I'm going to say this. If we all adopted this mindset. What would this church look like? What would our homes look like? What would our marriages look like? What would our vocations look like? You see, it affects everything. Um, I hope that as you meditate on this, you will leave this place thinking, "I, I want to live as what Christ has already purchased me to be. I want to be what he has already made me, his blood-bought priest, who is now called in gratitude to offer myself unreservedly in every aspect of my life to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice unto him. And, And let me say this finally. If you do that, and I've met people that I have felt have done that in their life, they're very rare, but I have never met one that seemed like they had one single regret from doing that. I've never met one person who, from where I stood, looked like they had sacrificed themselves wholly out of a gratitude for what Christ has done that ever looked like they had one regret for that sacrificial life and service. It's a, it's a privilege. If you've never come to Christ, I am not calling you to sacrifice. I'm calling you to come to the sacrifice because you can't do this unless you've seen your need for him and you've come to the foot of the cross and you've said, I need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But the second you've done that, then we point you here and we say, now live as he has purchased you to live. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, these are weighty words and these are difficult words. We know that we have failed to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices in the totality of our lives, and we pray that you would have mercy on us again. We thank you for the incredible, superabounding grace and mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, that you have pardoned all of our sins, that you have clothed us in his righteousness, that you have broken the power of sin, that you have made us slaves of righteousness and new creatures in Christ. And our God, we pray that you would motivate us this morning by those mercies that we might present ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Our God, would you help us to examine our lives, to see the ways where we have sought to please ourselves, and to again, in gratitude, turn to you to offer up our lives in every part to you, as grateful sacrifices of holiness, acknowledging your perfect and acceptable will. Our God, would you work in us to that end? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.